podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. J. Ligon Duncan on the historic Marrow controversy. He is the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. He has edited, written, and contributed to numerous books and publications. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Duncan teaches lessons for today from the Marrow controversy. I'm not going to assume that everybody uh, has the story of the Marrow controversy memorized, but I don't want to take our whole time recounting the Marrow controversy, so let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of what the Marrow controversy is and try and uh, give you just enough background that you can appreciate what the Marrow controversy has to say to us today about the doctrine of sanctification. The, the Marrow controversy uh, in Scotland was a dispute within Scottish Presbyterianism that was occasioned by an ecclesiastical trial of a professor in Glasgow by the overturning of a presbytery decision uh, in Achterarder and by the publication of a book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity, and hence the Marrow Controversy, from the name of the book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Now, The Marrow of Modern Divinity was uh, essentially anonymously published by someone named E.F. Now, it's common today to identify E.F. as Edward Fisher, the barber surgeon, not the lawyer, so a lay Puritan theologian from the mid-17th century compiled the book, The Marrow of, Mon- of Modern Divinity, essentially from the writings of Calvin, Beza, Bolton. I mean, it's a, it's a huge list, and he'll give you the list at the beginning of the book. He, it, it's almost like um, Hepa. Uh, and his Reformed dogmatics, he, the, the dialogue in the book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, is very much drawn from the writings of Reformers and post-Reformers and Puritans. And um, this book was published in the middle of the 17th century, but while making a parish visit uh, in a little town uh, called Semprin, Uh, Thomas Boston, who did not have a lot of books of his own, spied a copy of the marrow on one of his parishioners' shelves and asked to borrow it. And uh, 
the parishioner was happy to give uh, Boston a copy of it, and Boston loved what he read. And on occasion, sitting next to a friend of his at uh, General Assembly, he recommended the book to the friend. And uh, eventually, the book was republished. And so the Marrow controversy takes its name from the Marrow of Modern Divinity. The supporters of the theology of the Marrow of Modern Divinity got called the Marrow Brethren or the Marrow Men. Uh, they were people like Thomas Boston and Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine. And for any of you with connections with the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church here in the United States, which began in America in 1745, that's part of the ARP lineage. The Associate Presbytery came into being in the 1730s in Scotland after what was called the original secession. Some of those men, the Erskines, Boston, left the Church of Scotland over a variety of issues and formed the Associate Presbytery. And uh, that Associate Presbytery got together with the Covenanters, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland. When they got to Virginia, uh, the, the Episcopalian landowners uh, wanted the Scottish stonemasons to be able to work. The Scottish stonemasons wanted to not have to go to the Episcopal Church. And so the Associate Reformed Presbytery uh, was formed in the United States in 1745, a very old denomination, but it has roots going all the way back to these people uh, who were involved in the Marrow controversy. So when the book was published, it was published in 1718 with a preface by James Hogg. And the book uh, greatly displeased a number of people in the Church of Scotland, including Professor James Haddo, who was a, a systematic theologian, a professor of divinity, and the principal, the, effectively the equivalent of, of a seminary president for us, the principal of St. Mary's College at the University of St. Andrews, the divinity school there for the Church of Scotland. And he took a lead in opposing uh, the marrow. Now, just to give you a, a little background, in the 17 teens, there had been a controversy about a professor at Glasgow who showed sympathy for Socinianism and for Arminianism. Uh, he, he was articulating some things that sounded like the teaching of Faustus Socinus, one of the people that John, John Calvin had opposed during the Reformation. Socinianism typically had low views of the divinity of Christ and denied aspects of penal substitutionary atonement uh, and a whole variety of other important uh, parts of Reformed theology. And this theologian at, at uh, Glasgow showed an affinity for this in his uh, lectures uh, and in his published writings. He also showed a tendency to Arminianism. He was tried by the General Assembly, and he was effectively given a slap on the wrist. And what this, what this signaled to many ministers in the Church of Scotland 
was that the spirit of the day in the Church of Scotland was one that was going to wink at Arminianism and Socinianism and yet have a different attitude towards evangelical Calvinism. And sure enough, when the assembly counseled that professor at uh, Glasgow to make sure that he did not uh, undermine the free grace of the gospel in his teaching and then just sort of gave him an admonition and sent him on his way, the Presbyterian Octorarder, uh, taking to heart that admonition, said they were going to make sure that the young men entering into the ministry from their presbytery were not infected with that kind of Arminianism. And so one of the, uh, one of the candidates for the ministry in Octorarder, uh, a man named William Craig, uh, came for ordination and a question was asked to him. And uh, that question was designed to uh, sort of sniff out uh, a latent Arminianism. And uh, it, was a, it was an awkwardly worded question. Thomas Boston himself said he didn't like the way the question was phrased. But the design of the question was to see if you misunderstood the relationship between coming to Christ and forsaking sin. Do you have to forsake sin in order to come to Christ? Or do you have to come to Christ in order for the dominion of sin to be broken in your life? And uh, the question went something like this. It is not sound, can you affirm that it is not sound and orthodox to say that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ? Now, now you can see that's a somewhat convoluted sentence, and Boston himself is critical of the way the sentence is formed. But... It, it contains this nugget. <laughs> you know, do you have to clean up your life in order to come to Jesus? Or do you have to come to Jesus to see the dominion of sin broken in your life? And that's, that's it, it just, it gets down to that. Now, that's huge by way of application. And uh, if, if I can pause and give you another recommendation... If you get nothing out of this seminar other than my recommendation that you go listen to Sinclair Ferguson's three lectures on the marrow, you will have been well repaid. You can get them free all over the web. You can get them at the Monergism uh, website uh, and listen to his three lectures. These, th those lectures are, I bet you they're 20, 25 years old now, but they are solid gold. I think Brian Habig has listened to those lectures 15 times. Uh, and I've lost count of the times that I've listened to them. It's Sinclair Ferguson's lectures on the marrow of modern divinity. By the way, I think in, in our current discussions about sanctification that are going on today, I think that the answer to those questions is in the theology that Sinclair Ferguson articulates of the Christian life. And um, if, if you'll read Sinclair Ferguson and then more popularly Jerry Bridges, 
uh, they give the exact right emphasis on union with Christ, faith, grace, and consequent growth in grace and sanctification. I mean, I can't commend to you sounder, better, more gracious Reformed theology than you'll find uh, in, in Sinclair Ferguson and in Jerry Bridges on these very issues that we're all talking about today. I, I really think the resources we need are already ready to hand. We just need to use them and figure out how to preach them and use them in discipleship. So those three lectures on the marrow are absolutely stunningly good. Now, what happened was, is William Craig couldn't answer the question the way the Presbytery of Oxford wanted him to ask, answer the question. He was not ready to deny uh, that uh, you are that uh, that uh, that was a that was a good way to articulate the gospel, and so he complained. And the complaint went up to General Assembly, and the General Assembly rebuked the Presbytery of Oxford as having uh, essentially affirmed antinomian principles. Now, that said to the evangelicals in the Church of Scotland, the General Assembly is going to wink at Arminianism and Socinianism, but it's going to double down on a theology of grace. And it's, it's going to be very antagonistic towards uh, a flourishing evangelical Calvinism. Now, the, the 18th century was not a good century for the Church of Scotland. Now, Ian Murray, in his uh, introduction to William Cunningham's historical theology, characterizes the Church of Scotland at the end of the 18th century with these words. At the turn of the 18th century, the Church of Scotland was characterized by weakness, slumber, and death. So it was, it, was not a, it was not a happy time. The rise of Enlightenment thinking in Scotland had deeply impacted the Church of Scotland. Uh, the rise of moderatism, and in the Marrow controversy, you see the beginnings of what later would be called moderatism. Uh, Ian Murray quotes um, the, the brilliant but eccentric Dr. Kidd, from Aberdeen, who described moderatism this way. He said, uh, moderatism, uh, is, uh, a moderate sermon is like a fine winter's day, cold, clear, and brief. Uh, and, uh, and, and Dr. Kidd went on to say that he had personally uh, queried every minister in the Presbytery of Aberdeen, and not one of them could tell him how a person could be saved. Uh, so, you know, th these were not uh, halcyon days uh, in the days of Reformed theology in Scotland. But one of the bright points were the evangelicals of the Church of Scotland. And we see the beginnings of that in the Marrow Controversy. And uh, Boston's writings, again, I commend to you the writings of Thomas Boston. They're incredibly helpful and they will repay you well. So uh, what happened was the, uh, the marrow was condemned by General Assembly and uh, it, it wasn't particularly well defended. You had university professors and uh, hierarchs 
of considerable academic ability critiquing the marrow, and you had humble parish ministers trying to defend it. Uh, early on, Boston and the Erskines didn't get involved in the defense of the marrow, but they did, uh, they did make an appeal of the assembly's ruler, ruling and uh, represented on behalf of the marrow, and that's why they sometimes get called the representers as well, the marrow men, uh, the marrow brethren, and the representers. And uh, they, they launched an appeal to General Assembly, and that appeal was rejected. And the General Assembly went so far as to forbid people to read the marrow of modern divinity, which, of course, had the effect of everybody in Scotland wanted a copy of it. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a great story. It was published a few years later uh, with Thomas Boston's introduction and notes. And on one occasion, an evangelical minister in the Church of Scotland, he was still in the Church of Scotland, but with evangelical sympathies, um, found a copy of it in the home of one of his uh, congregants. And he said, now you know that the General Assembly has condemned that book. And his congregant said, yes, but it hasn't condemned Dr. Boston's notes. <laughs> so his way around that was, I'm, I'm just reading Thomas Boston's notes to the marrow. Uh, they weren't condemned because they hadn't been published yet when the assembly pronounced its uh, proclamation against the book. Uh, but the, it, interestingly, the assembly's condemnation of the book brought far more attention to it than it had ever had before. So that's, that's just a little sketch of the Marrow controversy and, uh, and, the, and the background to it. Now, the second thing I want to say is this. There have been three interpretations of the Marrow controversy. If, if, you, if you've studied the Marrow controversy at all, you know there are three interpretations at least of what was going on there. Some have argued that the Marrow controversy was an internecine dispute between two parties or sides that both held to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, there's plausibility to that particular interpretation. Why? Well, because those who condemned the marrow of modern divinity subscribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith and quoted the Confession of Faith and catechisms against the marrow of modern divinity in their church processes and in their theological writings. So some people have said the, the, the Marrow controversy is an example of how the Westminster Confession of Faith is not sufficient to solve these kinds of issues of dispute within the larger umbrella of Reformed theology on justification and sanctification. Now, however plausible that particular view of the Marrow controversy is, I think it's wrong. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, you can find reason to question the reality of the majority of the, sim, of the assembly 
uh, in its commitment to the robust theology of grace in the Westminster Confession, in the way they conducted themselves in the trial of John Simpson, in the trial of the Achterarder Presbyterian, and in their response to the Marrow uh, of Modern Divinity. And certainly you can see it in the rest of the tradition uh, of the 18th century in Scotland. Moderatism was very concerned with morality and not so much interested in the theology of grace. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has even wondered aloud whether uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries the Scottish church ever really understood the Reformation uh, doctrine of grace. Uh, and, and one of the ways he points to this is he, he says, I, I detect a marked uh, separation of the means of grace and the person of Christ in the theology of uh, so much uh, of uh, the Church of Scotland in those centuries. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. So as plausible as that interpretation is, that this is a debate within Calvinism that's faithful to the Westminster Confession, I think it's wrong. The second mode of interpretation of the Marrow controversy is that the Marrow men represent a revolt against classic federal or covenant theology and against the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you can find this, for instance, in the writings of J.B. Torrance. Um, the, the argument that the source of the theological downgrade in the Church of Scotland was the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that what Boston and the Merrow men were trying to do was liberate the Church of Scotland from the shackles of the Westminster Confession. Now, I, again, uh, I, I think that interpretation completely fails. For, for one reason, the Merrow men themselves professed to strictly adhere ex animo to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Boston wrote volumes of expositions of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, and Covenant Theology. A third of these published works were expositions of those things. Um, my friend Andy McGowan did his PhD thesis under J.B. Torrance at Aberdeen, uh, who was the major proponent of this view, and he did his Ph.D. thesis on the federal theology of Thomas Boston. And what he was trying to show in that Ph.D. thesis was that Professor J.B. Torrance was wrong. That, uh, that and, and uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Torrance, this is not T.F. Torrance, this is J.B., his brother. Um, Dr. Torrance was actually very gracious in his uh, oversight of that uh, of that thesis, and you can imagine, if you can make that argument to him, you can make that argument to anyone. And uh, what, what Andy tried to show was that, in fact, Thomas Boston's covenant theology was entirely in accord with the Westminster tradition. And there have been other theses that have made that same point, so I don't think that interpretation is correct. Uh, the... So, so you've got a view that this is all within Westminster Calvinism and uh, it's, an, it's an internecine conflict where the confession uh, isn't specific enough to specify 
a, a unified answer to the questions of justification and sanctification. You've got the view that the Marrow men are reacting against the Westminster Confession. And, and then you've got the view that the assembly is the correct defenders of the Westminster tradition and that the Marrow men have actually embraced unwittingly uh, views that are out of accord with that Westminster Calvinism with regard to the free offer of the gospel, with regard to universal redemption or uh, general atonement, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and, and even are, are liable to antinomianism. And uh, I, I don't think that's a, a proper... That, that view is really like the second view that I described, but it puts the white hat on a different party. You know, uh, in, in the J.B. Torrance view... The, the Marrow men are the good guys and the Westminster Confession and the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland are the bad guys. In that third view that I described, the good guys are the Westminster Confession uh, and the Church of Scotland majority and the bad guys are the Marrow men. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think any of those views do justice to the con controversy. I think in the end you have to say that the Marrow men are Westminster theology men. They, they, they really do stand in the tradition of Calvin and Beza and Puritans and the, the Westminster Confession in terms of their covenant theology, in terms of their understanding of union with Christ, sanctification, faith, uh, and the work of the Holy Spirit, the free offer of the gospel. They're, they're, they're classic Calvinists in that regard. But what happened then? What happened? Why, why were they in this fix? That's what I think has so much to teach us today that's helpful. And if, if you'll pardon me, what I want to do is I want to take you right to Thomas Boston's preface to that edition of The Marrow. And by the way, I'm pretty sure you can get a copy of that here if you go to the Christian Focus Publications uh, booth in the assembly hall. They have a very nice hardbound edition of the Marrow of Modern Divinity with Boston's notes. And it, and it look, it's a, it's a big book, and I know you're busy. But here here's my challenge: if you will just read Boston's preface, and then the preface by E. F. the author of the book. I think you'll be hooked. There's enough material in that preface and in the, in the opening remarks by the author to explain to you the, the relevance and helpfulness and practicality of the Mary of Modern Divinity, and then you can start working through it. And when you, re when you read the first chapter, which begins a discussion of the law, uh, it, it re you're, really your mind will explode with ideas of application of the truth there. But here's, here's what uh, Boston says in his introduction to the marrow of modern divinity. The gospel method of sanctification as well as of justification lies so far out of the ken of natural reason, so far out of the knowledge, out of the knowing of natural reason, that if all the rationalists in the world, philosophers and divines, had consulted together to lay down a plan for repairing the lost image of God in man, 
they had never hit upon that which divine wisdom had pitched upon. That is, that sinners should be sanctified in Christ Jesus by faith in Him. Now, what, what, what Boston is saying there is it's about union with Christ and it's about the reality of faith in that union with Christ. It's a, it's a brilliant summarization. And he says, no, being laid before them, they would have rejected it with disdain as foolishness. And then he says this, in all views which fallen man has towards the means of his own recovery, the natural bent is to the way of the covenant of works. This is evident in the case of the vast multitudes throughout the world embracing Judaism, paganism, Mohammedanism, uh, and popery. All these agree in this one principle that it is by doing men must live though they hugely differ as to the things to be done for life. And, and then he, he goes on to expound that for a little while. And then he says this. It's, and this is an incredibly important paragraph. Hence it is always to be observed that as the doctrine of the gospel is corrupted to introduce a more rational sort of religion the flood of looseness and licentiousness swells proportionately. Insomuch that morality brought in for doctrine in room and stead of the gospel of the grace of God never fails to be, in effect, a signal for the inundation of immorality in practice. That is incredibly important. A plain instance hereof is to be seen in the grand apostasy from the truth and holiness of the gospel as exemplified in popery. And he said, his point is this, have you ever seen anybody more interested in uh, ethics and morality than the Roman magisterium? And has it produced it? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Um, then he says, on the other hand, real and thorough reformation in churches is always the effect of gospel light breaking forth again from under the cloud which had gone over it. And hereof the Church of Scotland, among other, has oftener than once had that comfortable experience. The real friends of true holiness then do exceedingly mistake their measures in affording a handle on any occasion whatsoever for advancing the principles of legalism for bringing under contempt the good old way in which our fathers found rest to their souls and for removing the ancient landmarks which they set. Now that's a statement that is drawn right out of the Marrow Controversy. And you're going to see by the end of this preface what Boston is going to say is 
the people who claimed to believe the Westminster Confession of Faith had actually embraced Baxterianism. They were Arminians who had brought in a, a Baxterian formulation of faith and repentance as conditions of the gospel, which was a new law, who when they encountered the real theology of grace found in the Westminster Confessions chapter on justification and sanctification, called it antinomianism. But they called it antinomianism not because the Westminster divines would have called it antinomianism, but because as neonomians, they saw the theology of grace and they called it antinomianism. Now, Baxter beautifully here will, make, will say this, there is a difference between legalism or moralism and neonomianism and antinomianism. I think one of, the, one of the unhelpful things that's being said today, and I understand why it's being said, is that there's no difference between legalism and antinomianism, that they're the same thing. Now, I understand why that's being said. And if, if you reject the way of grace, it is true that every other way, however different it may be seen, is the same way. It's, 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 it's either me or it's grace. Okay, so I understand why people would say legalism and antinomianism is just the flip side of the same coin. But Boston, I think, is pastorally very wise in distinguishing what is behind legalism and antinomianism. And I want to share just a little bit of that from this passage. Now, here's, here's the, the statement that he makes that affirms what I've just said. Reader, he's, at, he's inviting you to read the book. Reader, lay aside prejudices. Look and see with thine own eyes. Call things by their own names. And do not reckon anti-Baxterianism or anti-Neonomianism to be antinomianism. So he's saying, when I, object to when I object to Richard Baxter's formulation, when I object to neonomianism, don't think that I'm arguing for antinomianism. Thou shalt find no antinomianism taught here, but thou wilt be perhaps surprised to find that the tale is told of Luther and other famous Protestant divines under the borrowed name of the despised Mr. Fisher, the author of the Mirror of Modern Divinity. In other words, he's saying, but Luther and Calvin and Beza and Bolton and others will be called antinomians by the people who are calling Edward Fisher's The Marrow of Modern Divinity antinomian. And, and he, he pulls out the, the famous ar argument that you've heard probably from the writings of Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, that Paul was accused of being an antinomian. And you remember Lloyd-Jones' argument is uh, that if you can't be accused of being an antinomian, then you're not teaching what Paul is teaching. Now, the other side of that is, if you don't have an answer to that, you're also not teaching what Paul is teaching. Uh, but that, that's, what, that's what he pulls out and uh, articulates here. Um, now, he, his, here, here are his final words in the preface. Be advised always to read over a lesser section of the book before reading any of the notes thereupon. 
that you may have the more clear understanding of the whole. So he's saying, don't read my notes first. Read, read a short section of the book. Don't look at my notes and just get a feel for the whole argument and then come back and read my notes and I'll help you. I conclude with this uh, preface with the words of two eminent professors of theology deserving of our serious regard. One, I dread mightily that a rational sort of religion is coming in among us. I mean by it a religion that consists in a bare attendance on outward duties and ordinances without the power of godliness. And thence people shall fall away, uh, shall fall into a way of serving God which is a mere deism, having no relation to Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. If you've ever sat under the lectures of uh, my senior colleague and brother in the faith, uh, Doug Kelly, you've heard him refer to reformed deism and the, the spirit of, uh, of barren uh, formal orthodoxy that has not the power of godliness within it. Well, that's exactly what Thomas Boston is talking about here. Here's the second word of warning. I warn each one of you and especially such as are to be directors of the conscience. That's a terrifying title to have, isn't it? For us to be directors of the conscience. That you exercise yourselves in study, reading, meditation, and prayer so that you may be able to instruct and comfort both your own and others' consciences in the time of temptation and to bring them back from the law to grace from the active or working righteousness to the passive or received righteousness in a word from Moses to Christ and uh, Boston has, has set before you in that preface why the marrow helped him so much in the context of what was going on in the Church of Scotland now in the uh, preface by Edward Fisher uh, and in his opening statements, we also find much help. And, and let me just take you right there. We're running out of time. Um, l listen to what Fisher says at the very beginning of the book. There is no point in all practical divinity that we are naturally so much averse and backwards to as unto this. Neither does Satan strive to hinder us so much from doing anything else as this, and hence it is, that we are all of us naturally apt to abide and continue in that sinful and miserable state that the first Adam plunged us into without either taking any notice of it or being at all affected with it so far as we are coming out of uh, so far as we uh, so far are we from coming out of it and if the lord be pleased by any means to open our eyes to see our ministry our misery and we do thereupon begin to step out of it yet alas we are prone rather to go backwards towards the first adam's pure state in striving and struggling to leave sin and perform duties and good works 
hoping thereby to make ourselves so righteous and holy that God will let us into paradise again to eat of the tree of life and live forever. And this we do until we see the flaming sword at Eden's gate turning away uh, everyone to keep the way of the tree of life. Is it not ordinary when the Lord convinces a man of sin, either by means of his own word or his rod, to cry after this manner, and this, he's, he's characterizing how so many Christians respond. Oh, I am a sinful man. I have lived a very wicked life. Therefore, surely the Lord is angry with me and will damn me in hell. Oh, what shall I do to save my soul? Is there not at hand some ignorant, miserable comforter ready to say, Yet do not despair, man, but repent of your sins and ask God of forgiveness and reform your life. And doubt not that he will be but merciful to you. For he has promised, you know, that at what time soever a sinner, sinner repenteth of his sins, he will forgive him. And so he says that's the counsel that he gets. Be sorry for your sins and reform your life. And does he not hereupon comfort himself and say in his heart at least, Oh, if the Lord will but spare my life and lengthen out my days, I will become a new man. I am very sorry that I have lived such a sinful life, but I will never do as I have done for all the world. Oh, you will see a great change in me. Believe it. Hereupon he betakes himself to a new course of life, and it may be, becomes a zealous professor of religion, performing all Christian exercises, both public and private, and leaves off his old companions and keeps company with religious men, and so it may be, goes on to his dying day and thinks himself sure of heaven and eternal happiness. And yet it may be, all the while, he is ignorant of Christ and his righteousness and therefore establishes his own. That is what the marrow is about attacking. And I think, I think that's why it's so helpful to us today. Uh, he says, Where is the man and where is the woman that is truly come to Christ that has not had some experiences in themselves of such a disposition as this? If there be any that have reformed their lives or become professors of religion and have not taken notice of this in themselves more or less, I wish that they may have gone beyond a legal professor or uh, one still under the covenant of works. No, where is the man or woman that is truly in Christ that finds not in themselves an aptness to withdraw their hearts from Christ and to put some confidence in their own works and doings? If there be any that do not find it, I wish that their hearts did not deceive them. <laughs> and he, he goes on to explain how the marrow addresses uh, that particular problem. And, and, and here's how he addresses both the problem of that kind of legal spirit and antinomianism. There are they that content themselves with a gospel knowledge, with mere notions in the head, but not in the heart, glorying and rejoicing in free grace and justification alone, professing, Christ, uh, professing faith in Christ, 
and yet are not possessed of Christ. These are they that can talk like believers and yet do not walk like believers. These are they that have language like saints and yet have conversation like devils. These are they that are not obedient to the law of Christ and therefore are justly called antinomians. Now, he's just described the legal tendency and the antinomian tendency. And notice, for him, they are not the same thing. They're two very different things. But he says this, Now both of these paths, leading from Christ, are justly judged as erroneous. And he begins to unfold how. And I think that's one of the keys to our current discussion. And that's why I think that the marrow will be so helpful to you. So I commend to you the marrow as we begin to work through these things through together ourselves in our own time. May the Lord bless you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.